This is Lives of Adventure, and I'm your host, Jeff Gardner. I am really excited to share today's episode with you all. My guest is someone who has lived two distinctly different lives so far and has such a wonderful, open, and optimistic way of approaching the world and trying new things. Damian Brown spent 16 years as a professional rugby player. That's more than double the average length of a pro rugby career. I actually looked it up. And since retiring from rugby, Damien has poured his non-trivial amount of energy into traveling, photographing, and pushing himself, both physically and mentally, in far-flung regions of the world. Everything from six-day, 250-kilometer ultramarathons in the Sahara, to climbing Kilimanjaro, to trekking through Afghanistan, and even riding iron ore through West Africa. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, but I want to make sure that you all pay close attention to Damien's perspective on work, on suffering and mental challenges, and on how much he appreciates so many aspects of the world around him. I found myself feeling really energized after my discussion with him, so instead of trying to do over-introducing, I will just let you hear the story itself straight from Damien. So please enjoy my conversation with Damien Brown. Damien, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing? Thanks very much. Um, it's really fun to have you on here. I think it's, uh, I think you've got a really interesting story in the sense that, um, you were very, very deep into a, uh, you know, very kind of mainstream sport, at least here in Europe, um, for a good number of years. And, and since you've kind of retired from playing rugby professionally, you've gotten into a whole different aspect of kind of adventure or kind of a non-standard path, as I like to say. Yeah, it's not really the, um, conventional, um, pathway to take after you finish playing rugby. A lot of lads, um, decide to, uh, stay in the environment in some way or another, but, <clears throat> I was very conscious that I needed to um, completely step away and um, break off from the rugby culture as such that it kind of consumed me my whole adult life to that point. Yeah. So, um, so cool. uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll get into the kind of uh, retiring and the break from rugby, but I guess just to get started and to kind of let people know uh, a little bit more about your rugby career, I guess let's just scroll all the way back to the beginning. And, you know, how did you, when did you start playing rugby? I started when I was 11 years old. Um, I started in my local rugby club, Galwegians RFC, which is uh, in Galway in the west of Ireland. It's basically, it was... Um, a stone's throw from my house and all the kind of kids in the neighborhood were were going up there to play. We were all very similar ages, like say maybe three or four years either way between us. So we were kind of, we'd all march up on a Saturday morning for uh, half 10 training. And um, yeah, it just, it just went from there. You know, I, I kind of continued on um, when a lot of those, a lot of my neighbors, a lot of my friends dropped off over the years. But um, yeah, continued me. on quite a bit further and longer than most, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, I really, yeah, uh, I, uh, I really flogged the dead donkey towards the end, but um, yeah. 
So what is it about rugby that you particularly love, uh, you know, I guess versus other sports or, I mean, maybe obviously you've played rugby professionally uh, for a very long time and you were playing since you were 11. So I don't know, maybe you didn't play all that many other sports, but what is it about rugby in specific that's so kind of held you within its grasp? Um, definitely the, the physical contact side of it. Uh, from the <clears throat> from my first training session, I remember quite vividly um, missing a tackle, but been so committed to the tackle um, and getting a, a kick in the face while I was doing it. Um, and there was nothing bad about that feeling, if if that makes any sense. I, I absolutely loved it. My body was like um, t- giving me all sorts of. Um, signal saying this is for you so uh from that point on it was always the physical side of it that really attracted me and that's what i got got a lot of um fulfillment from that side of it wow and when did you actually have kind of a suspicion or know that you might actually have a chance to play professionally um it was around i was leaving school um in ireland it's called the the leaving cert is your final kind of exam at 17 or 18 years old um and i was actually just post exam so i was 18 just 18 and i got a call from the um the head coach of the provincial team who was uh, who were professional and he rang me up saying that he wanted me to come train with them for the summer um so that was my first kind of um, footsteps into professional rugby. And um, because that went kind of so positively for such a young guy, kind of had an inkling if I um, well, if I worked hard, I had a chance of uh, making a professional career out of it. And like you said, rugby is incredibly physical. So I imagine kind of the working hard and, you know, creating kind of, a, you know, a rugby built body is not something that comes very easily to pretty much anybody it's got to be a lot of work right yeah sure sure like that's it's paramount you know you 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 don't survive in that game without having a a very high work rate um because there's such competition um you know for places that uh if a guy well if you don't work hard enough somebody else sure as hell is working hard and um you know hard work pays off so yeah, it's it's very important to um, to uh, hit the gym, you know, at a young age, um, and um, and build yourself up a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And you played professionally, you know. I, we won't go into the super details of all the different uh, teams and leagues that you played <coughs> for. Uh, you know, we'll link it up, and people can kind of check it out if they want to. But you played professionally for sixteen years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, turned professional at nineteen, so, and then I, I retired at at just thirty five. So yeah, I, I managed sixteen seasons in total. Um, wow. and so I yeah. looked, I actually had to look this up online, but that's more than double the average uh, like career length of a professional rugby player. How exactly did you manage that? Um, it goes back to what I was talked about there earlier, I suppose. Um, the work ethic definitely um, definitely plays a huge part in it. You know, I was very lucky to have some coaches when I was 18, 19, 20, who really instilled that kind of work ethic in me. Um, also, you have to be very lucky, you know what I mean? Um, 
it's all well and good. You have to be very lucky with injuries and stuff like that. So for the first kind of, I would say, maybe seven years of my career, I had literally no injuries. Um, as I got a bit older, they, you know, there was a bit more mileage on my body and certain um you know, certain chronic injuries crept in just because it's such each season is so long. You know, you're talking about 11 month season and then you get five weeks off and then you're back into preseason. So it's very, very difficult to um, to survive without getting some sort of kind of injuries or chronic uh, injuries. So, right. Um, but yeah, there, there is definitely uh, an element to luck in it. But also, you know, you you learn to survive, you know, in those type of environments, they are, you are surviving kind of daily, hourly, minute by minute every day, you know, in those environments, because, you know, like I alluded to earlier, the minute you're not in that kind of mode is when somebody's passing you out or somebody's doing more than you. Um, and then, uh, um, it can be, uh, yeah, detrimental to your kind of career. Right. So obviously, I mean, it's a huge mental aspect, uh, not, not even just talking about the game, but like there's a huge mental aspect to just training and being, you know, kind of so immersed in it that, you know, you sort you can't be usurped in a sense. No, um, there is a massive mental aspect to it, you know, and I think that's the guys who, um, who really survive kind of have those 14, 15 year plus careers are the guys who, um, have worked that out pretty early, you know, worked out who they are, um, it's such a pressurized environment, you know, you have to be able to deal with, um, that side of it. You know, you're, you're literally getting pulled and prodded every kind of day, getting tested. You're being judged by not only coaches, not only fans, but your, your strength and conditioning coaches, everyone wants has a PC, you know, so you really have to be able to, um, you really have to have a, a way of mentally uh, processing that, and keeping yourself grounded and keeping yourself focused on your improvements. So I'm not saying that came to me. I, I learned that as I went along, you know, mm -hmm. I kind of evolved throughout my career. But um, again, that comes back to I, it evolved because I found a way to survive. You know, I built up a resilience to survive in, in that environment, which is, you know, it's, it's really competitive and, and very tough. Yeah. And did you have any like specific techniques that you kind of learned over the years that, you know, would you think would be kind of broadly applicable to anybody who is trying to develop kind of more, uh, I guess, resiliency to high pressure environments? Um, the one thing I always kind of, um, whenever stuff I found was kind of getting out of control or I felt like I was a bit confused and I didn't know <clears throat> what direction, uh, anything was going, you know, with maybe with selection or just with my, my, my general season or my form, I always just came back to what I knew and that was to work. So I, I'd kind of sit down and reevaluate what sort of, um, hours I've, I had been putting in, in be it the gym or in the analysis, video analysis, um, studio or whatever I could control. I went back to and just refocused on that and controlled what I could control um, and then left the kind of stuff that was out of my uh, power, you know, selection and that just left that um, to somebody else or I didn't really um, engage in it. Um, I just I just focused on those things that um, could make me or could, you know, could make me um, better. 
Very interesting. So, I mean, it's, I mean, I guess in a sense, it really is just put your head down, work hard on the things you can work on and kind of let the, let the chips fall where they may and let the work sort of speak for itself, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so important that, um, you learn to love the grind, you know, the day in day out stuff that, um, there's no getting away from, you know, you have to get in the gym, you have to get fit. Your body composition has to be a certain level. Um, you have to do your video analysis. So you better learn to love that sort of stuff and you better find some sort of reward in that, um, in that whatever it may be subject, you know? So for example, I love the gym, so I had no problem getting in there as much as possible. Actually, I had to be pulled out of it most of the time, but, <laughs> but I did not love, uh, analyzing my game and watching myself play and watching myself train. But, um, I had to find a way to, um, for that to become rewarding to me so I could get in there and put in the hours, you know, otherwise I was just going to find excuses to, um, fob it off. So, right. uh, so that's what I did. Amazing. I'm starting to see a pattern here that I think we'll revisit later when we start to talk about some of the, uh, runs and otherwise that you've done. So <laughs> <laughs> finding a way to enjoy the grind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So playing professional sports, uh, you know, is a path that a lot of kids dream of, I think, uh, is it all it's cracked up to be? Um, it depends what you think it is, I suppose. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely incredibly rewarding. You know, I, I dreamt about playing rugby because I love the sport. You know, I didn't dream about any of the, um, trappings that go with it. You know, that didn't really interest me. I actually, I just love getting out and playing. Um, and, uh, it, it you know, it instilled and it built in me huge values that I'm incredibly grateful for and I rely on daily. Um, but you know, there's parts of it that are, you know, tough, you know, it's not, mm. there's no absolute, I can't really say, you know, oh, it's, uh, it was, you know, the most amazing experience ever because it's not, but again, <clears throat> I come back to taking something out of even the negatives, you know, that was, I suppose, something I learned as I went along. If, uh, you know, whatever, for, if I, for example, if I got a long-term injury, you know, nobody wanted to be in that case. It's, right. it's actually a pretty lonely place to be, but I try and I try and make it positive in some way to myself. And I'd say, just imagine the amount of resilience going to build up because of this, you know, I'd find a way to make it a positive. So, um, so I suppose even the negatives turned out to be positive for me, but yeah, like I think if if a kid is completely passionate about the sport and and they really want to uh, uh, give it a go and try and become professional, I you know I would absolutely recommend it. You know, at least at least you're going to commit to something and you're going to have a a learning at the end of it. You know, if you're successful or if you're um, not is kind of inconsequential. At least you've committed to something and you've gone after something you love. So, so um, yeah, go and do your best and give it a and, go and see how it works out. Yeah, amazing. So you were kind of forced to retire in a sense from kind of a chronic knee injury. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I was uh, finished. I finished playing in France in a club called Oyana, and. Uh, I picked up a very innocuous injury in a game against uh, Clermont-Ferrand one evening in uh, 
think we weren't very long into the season and, and it never got better. Uh, and uh, it was an incredibly frustrating time for me, I must say. Um, I I felt that the injury was not a career ender. Um, and I felt also that I, I really wasn't surrounded by a, an environment that was um, kind of supportive in my <laughs> in my uh, rehabilitation you know the the some of the clubs in France can be a little bit um, uh, how do I say it a little bit old school when it comes to like certain aspects and the medical side of things there weren't very good so right. it turned out to be really really frustrating time for me because I was doing everything I could to um, to remedy the problem with my knee, you know, I was, mm-hmm. I was seeking second and third opinions. I was going outside the club's uh, medical structure. I was traveling to England myself to meet people. But uh, unfortunately, it just never came good within that um, time frame of the season. And, you know, I got to a stage where there was like six weeks left in the season and I was really, really like fed up, I suppose is a good way to put it. You know, I was kind of broken by the whole experience. Um, so, yeah, I just decided to retire. Um, when I, when I look, when I think back, I, I, you know, at best I had one more year left and I, I like, it's not as if I, you know, it's not as if I was 23 and I got a major injury and right. I, I had to retire and I didn't see it coming. Obviously you're 33, 34 and the body's creaking every day and you're right. going, how far, how long can I continue this? So I, I, the question had been in my head anyway, you know, will I go for one more season? Uh, what sort of effects will that have on me long term? Because, you know, rugby is a sport where you sacrifice a lot physically. Um, you know, we don't really know what states or bodies are going to be in in 20, 30, 40 years. So that question was in my head as well. So I, I hadn't made a decision on that. But, um, you know, I, I, I can't complain at the same time. I, I had a, a very long career and... Um, and yeah, it was just, it's just the way it ended wasn't ideal. You know, I would have liked to have right. ended a plane and, and right. you know, it wasn't to be. Yeah. So uh, this is probably a hard question to answer, but, you know, doing something from the time you're, you know, 11 really, but, uh, you know, becoming professional at 18 or 19, um, that must've been really, I mean, that was your identity, really. It was very core to who you were for so many years uh, and really so many formative years. What was that period kind of immediately after that season when you had decided to retire like? Was it, you know, did you feel like it was a real weight on you or kind of was it the opposite that you kind of all of a sudden had lots more freedom than you used to have and and kind of, you know, had your own direction to set from that point? Mm. No, it's a great question because, and you're you're dead right. It, it was my identity, um, and it it is. Uh, it's hard. I think it's very hard for any rugby player to say it's not. Um, I think, I think that's why a lot of people, when they finish playing, have serious problems readjusting because um, they're not that person anymore, or their identity was so wrapped up in it. Um, to say I was conscious of it. Uh, I don't think would be unfair. Like I, I knew that was going to be a problem and I knew that um, I had other interests that I was excited about exploring when I did finish. So I really poured myself into those things um, that I had had like that I had kind of hadn't 
been able to explore because of that career for so long you know so it wasn't as if I said oh now I'll just go and travel like I I always kind of traveled but now I had the now I had the time and the opportunity to do things that or experiences that uh, I just couldn't have tried before because of rugby, you know, because every every decision you make when you're a rugby player is a, revolves around, well, is this good for me? Is this good for my body? Is this good for my career? You know, but uh, so I, I was quite excited, you know, I didn't buy into the whole like in the rugby culture, there's this whole doom and gloom thing about your career finishing. I didn't see it like that. It just didn't feel like that to me. I was, you know, delighted to um, to get into something new. And like I said to you before, I had consciously, I, I really wanted to step away from that environment because, um, you know, I didn't know anything else and I, I wanted to explore and, and explore myself and explore other avenues. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's what I did. Very cool. And it's perfect transition to what I wanted to ask you about next, <laughs> which is, you know, you kind of mentioned just there that you'd done some traveling, but obviously with, uh, you know, five weeks off in, in a year during, you know, a very long rugby season, you don't get a ton of opportunities for, you know, the bigger travels and things like that. Um, did you, you know, as soon as you finished, did you just immediately start planning trips and, and trying to figure out what, you know, what kind of uh, trouble you were going to get yourself into in a sense? Kind of. Yeah. I had, um, <laughs> I had um, a few things in my head that I wanted to really try, you know, in, in previous kind of off seasons, in between seasons, I had uh, I had done a kind of few adventures towards the end of my career in those five weeks. Like now they mightn't have been, um, they mightn't have been recommended by my uh, coaches or my strength conditioners, but I, uh, you know, I, I wanted to do those sort of things and I, I tried to, uh, give myself enough time to kind of uh, recuperate um, at the same time, you know, but uh, once the, once my, um, once I knew I was retiring, um, I, I, gave, I, I planned a kind of eight week trip around Central Asia uh, with the carrot of going into Afghanistan um, at the end of that eight weeks for like two and a half weeks, we did a, a high altitude trek in the Wakan corridor. Um, so that was something I was really excited about, you know, because I, I was, I, <clears throat> I kind of, from my travels for the last, say, maybe three or four years, I've kind of branched into just countries that are less traveled. You know, I just wanted to go and see what life was like there simply, you know, see how people lived, um, instead of like reading, you know, somebody's opinion in a, in a newspaper or a magazine or whatever. Right. And did you find, uh, you know, Afghanistan in particular, I suppose, uh, did you find that very different from what you were expecting or did you kind of go in with them, you know, tried to go in with at least a, as blank as late as possible in the sense? That, yeah. 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 No, I, I do. I do. Um, I do find expectations get in the way a little bit. So like you said, a, the blank slate really works. I think when you're going into these places, you know, and, and just try and, um, you know, try and use your eyes a little bit and, and, and try and uh, just see how the daily life is there for people, you know. Um, so I didn't really know what to expect, you know. I was excited, of course, you know. It's not mm -hmm. every day you get you go into Afghanistan, you know, from through, through, through um, Tajikistan. So the whole process um, was, uh, yeah, it was great, you know. I, I um, And then um, we went up into the just it was it was so remote the area we went in i think we were driving for like two and a half days to get to the start of the trek and then we 
we walked for another two and a half days to get into the kind of the big Parmir, um, kind they call it the roof of the world. You know, it's between three of the <coughs> three of the major um, mountain ranges: the Hindu Kush, the Parmirs, and the Karakoram. Mm. So, um, and then we saw just you know you're kind of going back like five six hundred years. You know, when you meet the 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 local wacky people and then further up in the um in the valley you meet the um the Kyrgyz people who live up there all year round you know even during the winter when it gets to minus 30 celsius or something crazy like that so um yeah they they live a very kind of uh they live a very simple existence and i i kind of presume it's what like what society was like uh yeah five or six hundred years ago here or even further back you know yeah yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let's imagine that's a very, very beautiful area. It's a famous area for climbing for sure. Um, so that's that's kind of my understanding of it is seeing photos and all the climbing magazines of expeditions in that that region. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely stunning. You know, you know, like you're just you're in between these like seven, seven and a half thousand meter peaks. You know, as you're walking um, uh, and in these beautiful kind of um, valleys with you know these glacial streams running off them and you know you haven't bathed in like uh, a week and you get into one of the streams to wash it's uh it's pretty amazing experience a real simple experience yeah but a little fresh incredible. i imagine <laughs> yeah fresh but um yeah you're you feel alive after it i tell you that yeah yeah so you've climbed Mont Blanc and the Grand Paradiso, which are kind of nearby each other in uh, in the Alps. You've summited Kilimanjaro. You spent a bunch of time in Peru doing kind of high altitude trekking and uh, obviously uh, in the Pamirs and in Afghanistan and things. Was that sort of a period that you went through where you're just like, all right, I got to get up high. I got to get deep in the mountains. Um, was there something no. kind of behind that or was it just kind of it all kind of came together separately? I went to um, Peru to do the Alaris, the Alaris Trail, which is um, it's an alternative to the Inca Trail. Um, so I'd never been at altitude before, and <laughs> I had a backpack on me, and I had my laptop, and I had like all this um, gear that was like weighing me down. And uh, I remember the first day we we went into uh, a hot springs uh, just before we started, and then we took off up the mountain. And I think the trek was like, I don't know, 45 kilometers over three days. And I was like <laughs> absolutely piss and sweat and out of breath after about 20 minutes with this backpack on me. And I'd never <laughs> been experienced to, to altitude before. And I was like, what have I let myself in for here? Um, but I absolutely loved it. Um, you know, the next three days were just a complete mental battle to keep putting one foot in front of the other, um, and uh, and get over the um, the caps, you know the the um, that we had on the trek. I think the highest we went over was four thousand four hundred meters or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I, I I don't know what other people think about this, but um, it's one of those feel. It's one of those gratifications that grows deeper and deeper the kind of further away from the experience you get so i probably swore that i'd never go up another mountain after that but uh i got back to reality did a season of rugby and before i knew it i was planning to um go higher i wanted to go higher i wanted to try kilimanjaro then was kind of the the logical next step um and um 
And uh, yeah, so I, I, I booked in for that during an off season again and uh, climbed it with a company a group of about 12 of us. And it was just amazing. It's still to this day the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, I, I was <laughs> I, like, I'm a pretty big guy. Like I was 126 kilos or something like that coming off a of rugby season. Um, so I'm not exactly made for uh, high altitude, but yeah, just the, the, the kind of... Um, I had to dig so deep to kind of get to the summit and, and all the kind of rewards, the, 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 the deep rewards that come for that after you, uh, you've, um, you've achieved your objective if you want, you know, um, yeah. and it just grows on you, you know, like I, I, I'd say uh, a year later, I was kind of going, man, that was amazing. But like a day after the Kilimanjaro, I was like, yeah, I'm never, ever, ever going near a mountain again. <laughs> uh, so, um, I have yeah, I have a I saying I have a saying for that and I call it type two fun, which is like type type, two, type right. one fun is fun when you're doing it and then fun later when you remember it. Type two fun is when it's not fun when you're doing it, decidedly, but fun when you remember it much later. Uh, so <laughs> yes. there are many things in uh, I guess adventure sports especially that kind of classify themselves into type two fun. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So um no, I, I don't think I'll ever stop. You know, I uh I probably know at a stage where I'm kind of swapping between different types of kind of adventures, but I would love to, I would love to try some, um, some more, uh, some more climbing and some more, uh, some high, more high altitude mountains, but I would look, like to also get into kind of the technical side of it as well. And just, just learn about that, you know, and, and, yeah. and see what. So do you find that, um, you know, one thing you were saying there is that like, you know, you found that there was a lot of enjoyment really in kind of the suffering part of it almost like the mental aspect of just continuing to push forward. Is that something you find yourself now having kind of experienced it several times, you kind of know that there's a point at which that feeling kind of kicks in and you, you kind of not almost not welcome it, but sort of, you know, it's coming and, and to a certain degree, you're kind of like expecting it and almost enjoying it, even though it is sort of suffering. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, definitely, yeah. Um, I, wa I want the experiences to be hard. You know, I don't want them to be easy. I um, I was slightly disappointed with myself when I, I did the Martin de Sable because I probably didn't push myself to a level where it needed to, I needed to get, like, the kind of fulfillment from the experience. You know, it was, it was obviously very, very hard and all that, but I still think there was probably... I didn't tread that thin line enough, you know, where you, um, where you have to ask yourself questions and you have to go deep inside yourself and you have to, uh, find a way to get, to kind of get past those problems or troubles or, you know, bad time you're having. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I really, I, I want those, I want that from my adventures, you know, I want to push my limits. I want to, um, I want to grow and learn from from pushing my limits, so um, it's de it's definitely part of those adventures. Yeah. Nice. So let's talk about the uh, marathon de la Sable, which is uh, two hundred and fifty-seven kilometers, something like that, two hundred and sixty kilometers yeah. over right. over six days or five days. Uh, it was over six days. Yeah. Over six mm -hmm. days, and it runs through the Sahara. Is that right? Yeah, it's in um, southern Morocco, uh, very close to the Algerian border. Okay. Um, mm. 
And I read somewhere that that was on your bucket list for over a decade. That's a strange <laughs> thing to have on a bucket list. <laughs> what what exactly was the appeal of that race kind of, uh, you know, from arm's length away, not not having done like, you know, long distance running races before? I, I saw a documentary on it. Um, I think there was three brothers from Galway, the O'Donovan brothers, um, did the race like 2004 or five, um, when I was, I was still living in Galway and I saw the documentary and I, I just knew immediately that I would do that someday. That was something I would like to challenge myself with, you know, the whole, I must say the whole attractiveness of the tagline, the hardest race in the world, definitely kind of pulled me in <laughs> right right you're you know, like oh yeah, yeah. oh let's see about yeah. that <laughs> let's see what this now what's so hard about it so um and then you have 10 years to think about it because it's not an option when you're playing rugby you know so you're you it's not something like it's on your thoughts every day but right from time and time and time again you kind of oh yeah yeah definitely that's going to happen that's going to happen when i finish um and uh, the marathon de sable wasn't isn't and wasn't the only one of those things I have, I have a, I have a few of them, you know, so, um, but that was the first one I wanted to, uh, give it a go, you know, so, um, it was, it was a little bit tricky because I committed to the race, um, but I still had the knee problem, you know, and I hadn't run in like, I started training for the race about six months, six, six, seven months beforehand. And, uh, like the first day was literally like a 25, 25 minute, uh, jogs, I started 25 meter, excuse me, 25 meter jog. So I'd, I'd jog up to a line and stop and walk back and just to see how my knee was. Cause I hadn't done anything with it, uh, in that, in that space, uh, from finishing the season to this was probably six months, you know, so I hadn't literally done, um, any kind of, uh, running on it. Running was the big problem I had, yeah. um, when I was trying to come back from that injury. So, so, um, and then, yeah, I just, I just went from there with my train and like the first day it held up okay and it felt pretty good. And, and, uh, I never really had major problems with it, um, after that. That's great. I was about to say like six months for a race that long, it's you're, you weren't leaving yourself a ton of time there. <laughs> no, not really, not really. But I didn't, um, you know, I, I had one thing I always kind of, um, not relied on, but I was always conscious of that. I've been running for the last 16 years every day at a, at a quite a high intensity with training and that, you know, and I'd been training my body and that was something I, I was really interested in and passionate about kind of mm-hmm. almost to the, almost to the fact where I, I took a kind of, uh, I took responsibility for that myself kind of outside of the, the coaches and that. So, um, I, I, I always was pretty confident that in, in that six months I could get myself into, a um, a good enough, um, no, in fact, a very right. good shape to, right. to give it a go. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you weren't starting from zero. Obviously, you were coming off yeah. of a professional rugby career. So, right. yeah. yeah, excellent. And so, as you mentioned a moment ago, uh, the rugby physique is not necessarily super compatible with uh, climbing mountains at high altitude or necessarily with ultra running. Did you have to kind of change a lot of the kind of standard training recommendations that you kind of read on the internet? Did you have to kind of come up with your own programming? What did you do there? Yeah, I programmed it all myself. Um, I was pretty confident that nobody in the world, no matter how many, you know, degrees or PhDs they have, knows my body as well as I do. You know, I'm the one who's lived in it. I'm the one who's trained for hours and hours and hours for like the last 20 years in it. So um, 
I'm pretty interested in that side of things anyway, in kind of um, strength and conditioning and uh, how the body works. So I, I put together a program myself um, and um, I it's it was so far from a classic um, marathon or ultra marathon program. Uh, it's not even funny. You know, I, I literally ran once every nine days. And when I ran, it was like high intensity kind of um, interval training, like with a two to one ratio uh, work recovery. Um, And I just built up my volume um, on that. And the actual longest I ran um, without stopping was two kilometers um, in my training regime. And most of my stuff, yeah, most of my stuff was done around 400 and 500 meter kind of interval runs. Very Uh, interesting. And so what did you, I guess, were you doing a lot of strength training separate to that to just kind of build up, um, you know, muscle endurance or what? Yeah, did a lot of strength training, but I, I did a lot of uh, a lot of volume uh, in my legs because I hadn't done much in about six months. Um, so I tried to get up some decent strength levels again. Um, I kind of used uh, my upper body strength days for um, or push pull kind of pushing and pulling movements for as a kind of rest day, if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did a lot of conditioning, off conditioning. So I used the rower a lot. I'm uh, the ergometer and right. I used a thing called the um, air assault bike, which is like a fan resisted. Um, right. Yep. Uh, And I use a a watt bike as well, which is very similar without the upper body stimulation. So I use, so I was kind of doing like five, I was doing 10 day cycles. So it was like kind of five strength training sessions, um, two legs, three upper body, and then four, um, conditioning sessions. And they were kind of mixed in, you know, running, rowing, um, watt bike and the air assault. And uh, I did rotations on that. And then, uh, I, I think I, if I remember correctly, I scheduled my training like I did a the first like I think I did eighty days, eight weeks of ten days, um, and then I took ten days off. I went to the Congo traveling, uh, just completely let my body recover. Um, well, just to try to get sick in the middle of the uh, jungle before <laughs> heading to the desert, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wasn't searching out malaria. I was kind of yeah, fingers crossed it didn't come to me. But uh, yeah, no, I just I, again I. I I kind of, you know, you're trying to juggle your kind of passions there. And, and you also know that you like that, that 80 days was very intense. So you need to give the body that kind of window to, um, to recover from it. And then I, I think I came back and did 60 days and then took another 10 day, no, seven days off and then finished with a 30 day block. And then I took like a week off before the race just to tape, like taper a little bit into it, even though I wasn't doing much mileage, but, uh, yeah. So that, very was, interesting. that was the, and I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, the, the training worked out in the end because obviously you finished the race and, uh, you said you maybe didn't push yourself as hard as you felt like you should have in the end anyways. Yeah. Uh, no, it worked out. It worked out great. Like I was in really, really happy with where I was starting the race. And, you know, I, I think there was 1200, 1150 participants. I came 717. Um, I was like 117 kilos. I'd say I was double double body weight of a good 30 or 40 percent of the field yeah um, and then i had 17 kilos on my back as well because i i uh you know i i know how i recover i need sleep and i need food so i i brought plenty of food and i brought a like sleeping mat and a good sleeping bag so um you know i people were kind of looking at me strange but you know my only my goal was to finish the race not to win it or not to come in the top 100 or whatever right. so um 
you know, every day I was, you know, there was ultra guys who were ultra marathon runners kind of all around where I was. So I was pretty happy considering, you know, I was, I'm, I'm very, very far from an ultra marathon runner. Right. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting race in that sense because you are forced to carry six days worth of food, um, you know, alongside your sleeping bag and the rest of it. Yeah, no, it is. Um, and I, I think some people kind of go into it a little bit, uh, they listen to kind of, I don't know, people like if you want to come in the top 50, then you have to be really, really vigilant in the amount of grams that are on your back or, or, um, the type of food you're going, but like, that's not really applicable to, you know, over 50% of the fields, you know? So I, I was kind of just from my background, there was a lot of kind of, uh, links there that I could, you know, I, I knew that side, you know, the nutrition side and the sleep, and I knew how my body works. So I was, I was able to, um, delve into that and, and, um, kind of personalize it, but not everyone obviously has that. And they can be a little bit swayed by what's on the internet and on blogs about like cutting, uh, handles off toothbrushes and all that sort right, of stuff. Right. It's not really going to make much difference if you're grand on or off your toothbrush, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And they find uh, themselves eating those little like goo packets for six days straight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and they're wondering why they're not recovering and they're wondering why they're getting sick every day. And I'm like, right. well, you're putting sugar down your throat every time you, uh, you eat. What, what, when do you ever do that in real life? You know? So, right. uh, yeah. Mm. Mental. Uh, it sounds mm. like an incredible race. Uh, like how was the desert heat? Was it, you know, unbearable or did you find that there's just ways you deal with it and it's okay? Yeah, you, you have no choice. So, uh, it's to be honest, personally, it was way down the, I really didn't even bother me too much. I, I had so much other things to worry about. Um, you know, just my mobility wouldn't be the best, you know, so I was worried about lower back and hips and, uh, obviously blisters and stuff like that. So the heat is kind of, it's there, you have no choice. You just start to the day, you, uh, you know, you put on, you cover up as much as you can and you get your sunscreen on and you're, you're again, you're, you're vigilant with uh, reapplying that throughout the day. But um, we got, a, I think, about 45, 45, 46 degrees uh, one of the days. Um, so uh, it wasn't as bad as um, I've heard stories, you know, in past, like when it gets over 50 or whatever. But, right. uh, yeah, um, for personally, it really wasn't a concern because... Um, or it was well down the list of concerns. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was not a priority. It was a concern, but not yeah. a priority. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Cool. So uh, one of your, I guess, more recent adventures uh, had kind of much less to do with sport and more to do with photography, which is another, uh, I guess, great love of yours. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this train that you just rode? <clears throat> sure. Um, so it's called the uh, Mauritanian Railway. Uh, Mauritania is a country in northwest Africa, kind of between Morocco and uh, Senegal. There's one one railway line there that goes from um, a, a town called Zurash in the in the middle of Sahara Desert, right in the middle of the the country. Uh, it goes 700 kilometers to the coast to a, a port called Nuabidou uh, on the yeah on the sea. So. Um, what makes it unique is that it, so it carries iron ore from the mines in Zurat all the way. What makes it unique is that um, uh, locals use the train as a mode of transport. So they they literally climb up on top of the ore and sleep in the buckets that the 
coal or the iron ore is in and just travel throughout the night. It takes about 13 hours um, travel throughout the night um, with their whatever they have. So they could have like a lot of them use it to transport their goods and livestock. There's even like uh, goats and sheep on top of some of the buckets. Um, so it's very, very uh, unique that way. Um and I, I read a couple of travel blogs about it. Again, we're going back a few years. And I again, I was like, well, that's that's for me. I'm going to go and do that. Um, added to the list. <laughs> added to the list, yeah. And because I was studying um, photography here for the year in Paris, um, I, uh, I said it to my photojournalism teacher, could I use this as a, a project? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So it was a nice kind of nice double whammy um, that way. Good excuse to go check it out. Absolutely. Exactly. So you fly down here to Mauritania uh, and do you, does the train, can you like get to the start of the train or do you have to kind of fly into the port town and drive 700 kilometers out into the desert to get there? Um, so you can make a decision um, if you want to ride the train empty or full. Of course, of course, full is the best way to do it, in my opinion, um, because you're sitting on top of the buckets instead of in the buckets where, you know, you can't really see too much. Just makes sense to me. So if you ride it empty, you go to the port town and um, and you hop in the train there and it brings you into the desert. But for, from my point of view, I would say I wanted to get in it full when it's coming from the mine. So I had to find my way into the middle of Martania um, and uh, to a town called Shum, um, where it's the one stop between Zurat and New Abidu, um, uh, where the train stops. So, um, so yeah, that in itself was a little bit of a kind of adventure. Um, thankfully, I, I speak French, so I was able to uh, easily enough find my way there through kind of uh, shared taxis, and um on the back of a Hilux truck at one stage but i got there eventually and uh and then it was just a case of uh waiting around in this little dust bowl of a town called Tume, which which really has nothing but a railway track running through it um for the train to come and uh and then hopping on board when it eventually did come like 11 hours later <laughs> six hours late my god yeah uh we'll definitely i'll definitely add a link to the um to the blog post on your site about this because the photos are amazing they're really beautiful and uh it does look like a different planet like you know it might as well be mining ore on the middle of mars or something yeah it's very much like that yeah <laughs> very cool so i guess um the next big adventure that uh you know you have planned uh, at least that i know of maybe you'll correct me and tell me there's more but the next big one that i know of is rowing across the atlantic um how did that, where did that idea come from? I mean, who, who kind of goes, Oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to row across the Atlantic ocean. Um, well, it's definitely my next big one by a mile. And it's without a doubt the, the biggest, uh, adventure undertaking I've, I've ever, ever kind of tried or prepared for. Um, it came, it came about very similarly to, um, the Martin de Sabla, it was something I, I I read a book about um, James Cracknell, the British Olympian, and uh, Ben Fogel. They did it um, back in I don't know maybe two thousand six five or six. Um, I read the book The Crossing, and I was like, again, I'm going to do that someday. So um, 
With this one, I was a little bit more reluctant to commit to it because it's such a big campaign to put together. You know, it's it's not something like the you know the Martin de Sable. You just pay the entry fee and and you train. With right. this, you know, you have to um, you have to learn all all sorts of manner of things. You know, from uh, like we did a course where we had to go through our you know, learn how to use the VHF radio, learn how to use the, uh, learn how to survive at sea, first aid at sea, you know, just the, the, the rules of, um, uh, the rules of the sea, you know, um, all sorts of things like that. And then you have to learn all about the boat, uh, and how the boat works and what makes a good boat and what makes a bad boat. And, uh, and then you have to try and get, um, the whole, um, the whole campaign funded through like sponsorship, uh, corporate sponsorship, you know? So that was, to be honest with you, that was the, that was the thing that was, I was really reluctant about because I'm not very, you know, uh, I'm not very good at asking people to do stuff for me or asking for help. It's, it's not a strength of mine. So I was like, how do I go about this? You know, but uh, I suppose when you want something enough, you, you 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 just go after it you know and you you suck it up and you learn from you learn from your experience so i'm in the middle of that at the moment and it's not been as bad as i foresaw um but still it's not it's not something i i'm i'm uh, keen to uh to do much of in the future at the same time right and uh this race so i guess to to just give people an idea you row from the canary islands to um I'm forgetting the name of the island, but somewhere in the Caribbean. Antigua. Yeah, yeah, Antigua. So Canary Islands to Antigua, all the way across the Atlantic. Um, the boats are not traditional rowboats like you'd see, uh, you know, in the pond in your neighborhood park. Um, they're like very large. Um, they're quite a bit wider than normal. They've got a cabin on one end. Uh, they're covered in solar panels. Um, but, you know, they are open in the middle and there's two oars and a man sitting in the middle, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so, it exactly, yeah. So it's it's four thousand eight hundred kilometer um, journey or a challenge, um, and then the the boats are about like they're about seven meters long. Um, they have a cabin on one end, like you said, where you have all your you know your navigation equipment, your communications equipment, where you sleep, you know, where you hunker down in storms, um, and uh, yeah, after that, then it's just simply a case of um, you know, plotting your route um, and getting on the oars <laughs> and pulling and, um, and rowing several hundred thousand times or so. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've heard people say it'll be over a million strokes. Oh my god! Um, and it'll take somewhere in the um, somewhere it'll take somewhere between forty to ninety days. It all depends really on weather. Yeah. Uh, we and, go a route called the trade wind routes. You know, so. Um, ideally, uh, the currents and the winds will be, uh, in your favor. And a lot of the boats are designed to, um, you know, they sit on top of the water. So, um, the wind you know, can help you just a little bit. Exactly. A right. little bit of manpower then, and you can get the boat moving. So the other kind of, uh, caveat here that we haven't talked about yet is many people do this race, uh, in teams of two or three or four. You're doing this by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i am um you do really you know, really really enjoy that like mental aspect of things don't you because i mean that's the only reason i can think of that you would want to do four thousand eight hundred kilometers across the atlantic by yourself 
I do enjoy it. I, I, I admit it. Um, I, I never considered doing it with, well, not that I, I, I knew from the start it would be better to do it on my own. And also, uh, you know, I've been in teams my whole life. Uh, I've been a cog in a team. I know, I know teams. I know their dynamic, how they function. I think I'm a, I'm a good team player. So, you know, I want to do different stuff. So, uh, you know, um, it, it just made sense for me to, to try it on my own um, and uh, to live that experience kind of, you know, for myself. So, uh, yeah, so I committed to doing it solo. Um, yeah. That's incredible. Um, <laughs> that is incredible. And so the race from from this year has kind of just finished, a, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. Um, so you've got kind of most of a year to, uh, or at least you got eight or nine months to, to get your campaign all ready to go. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I actually started about eight, uh, sorry, 18 months, uh, pre the start race. So like April kind of May last year, this wow. time last year. um, I, I, I put the training program in place, the physical training program in place then. And I, I kind of worked on that for six months and I didn't, I didn't do too much else for the rest of the campaign, but kind of since December, January, I've been, uh, working away on, um, cause, uh, working away on the, um, sponsorship side of it. And then I'm putting, um, we're doing some, it's for charity as well, you know, so we're doing some, mm-hmm. uh, uh, external charity events that, um, you know, also require quite a bit of work, you know, so the, the campaign is, it's basically, well, not that I've ever really had a job, but I presume it's what like a, a real job is like. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine it's uh, it's a lot of moving pieces, isn't it? You know, it's sponsors and charity, and you know, just physically getting yourself ready for it. But you know, also having to worry about the gear and you know, getting the right boat and the right equipment and the right certifications and things. So it's mm-hmm. it's a lot of moving pieces. Mm-hmm. It takes it takes a lot of time, and you know, I'm I'm a kind of details guy as well, so I want all the details to be right. So um, yeah, I'm kind of trying to do it all at my by myself. Well, yeah basically all by myself at the moment but uh once i get home to ireland I'll, I'll have some some help from you know friends and family uh in regards to the events and uh and a lot of friends have been trying to help me out with the sponsorship side of things but uh yeah the we're very i'm very close now to kind of getting a boat hopefully get it in the next few days um and then we can kind of get onto the water uh hopefully kind of june start of june and that'll give me like four months to kind of really uh upskill about you know everything that the uh, you know how the boat works and everything about it really you know and, and get yeah. some hours at sea and uh see what my uh sea legs are like yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah i had a what friend i had a friend who was in the navy who uh used to say oh no everybody gets seasick it's just a matter of how long and how rough it needs to be <laughs> Yeah, I've heard some stories from uh, past roars as well, and um, let's just say I, I'm I'm preparing myself mentally for to yeah. be a long <laughs> seven or eight days. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, That's prepare so for the cool. worst and hope for the best, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm I have no doubt uh, that you will finish the race uh, one way or another. Uh, so <laughs> I'll be looking for you, looking forward to seeing it next year. Yeah, it's going to be, um, it's going to be really, I'm really, really excited. You know, it's like completely, completely out of my comfort zone, you know, so, um, that can only be good. Yeah, definitely. And actually, uh, so 
There's a set of questions that I ask uh, pretty much every guest, and that uh, that theme that you just mentioned, out of your comfort zone, is uh, the answer that many give to uh, a question that I'm about to pose to you. So maybe you've got a different answer. Maybe that is the answer. Um, but you know what? Like, how would you define adventure or being in an adventurous uh, situation? Oh, yeah, a great question. Um, I can't say I've. I have spent hours uh, meditating on it or considering it, but uh, I, I suppose for me, adventure is like a, it's, um, uh, it's a, it's into the unknown a little bit. You know, you, you don't know the outcome, so it's kind of like a, an exploration, an internal and external exploration, kind of pushing yourself into out of your comfort zone and into the unknown and and all the rewards that come from that and i mean i think i may know the answer to this question uh, after talking to you for an hour here but is there you know is that internal aspect of it much more important to you than the external aspect <clears throat> there's, a, there's a really strong link between both a friend of mine actually um who a friend of mine, Jerry Flannery, he's a well-known rugby player back in Ireland. He is a great saying that the quickest way to the mind is through the body. Um, and, um, I think he's dead right, you know? So, um, in my training and, um, I, I like to push my body to kind of really get a, a kind of window into, uh, you know, areas you don't often see. So with my adventures as well, I, I, I definitely get that. And, um, the link between the body and the mind is, is really important. And it's one I love exploring. It's why I do a lot of these kind of, is it's what, it's what I want to explore when I do a lot of these kind of uh, more extreme challenges. So, um, yeah. That's very cool. And, you know, in your opinion, do you think it's important? Why do you, you know, if so, why do you think it's important that, you know, humanity in general kind of continues to, explore adventure and go looking for adventure even if it's you know even if we've mapped the entire world and it's in you know the little pocket supercomputer that we're all carrying around you know is there some you know higher importance to just being out there and trying to be adventurous mm. um yeah let me see i did yeah it's it's really important for individuals to just to step out of that comfort zone, whenever it may, if it's once a year, once every two years, whatever it may be, just because of the rewards you get from that and how they translate back into your daily life. And for me, it gives me a, a, a lot of fulfillment, you know, when I, when I do these kind of adventures or challenges. So, um, that's why I I I I, would, I know I will continue doing them until I'm kind of put six foot under, you know. Um, so I I, I would encourage everyone to whatever their adventure may be to them doesn't matter. I, they all know what it is. It's that burning question or that burning um, desire that you've hidden at the back of your thoughts that you don't really want to look at. I would encourage people to to go after that and just to explore it, you know, what's, what's the harm in trying? Like if you're, if you're successful or if you're not in exploring your, 
adventure is kind of inconsequential. The most important thing is that you commit to it and, and give it a go and have, don't have any real regrets. That was a great answer. Oh, thanks. That's what a, that'll go down. Uh, I like that one for a long, long time. And I think there's, uh, there's a cool aspect in there that, you know, I really like that quote as well, uh, from your rugby player friend that, you know, fastest way to the mind is through the body. I think that's incredibly true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for us people who can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I've tried meditation and I, I can kind of do it for like, couple of minutes but uh after that i'm like okay what's next so uh a good uh, a good alternative is to get on a rowing machine and and pull 500 meters as fast as you can i think you get a, quite a similar um window into yeah. yourself so uh so that's what i do you know that's what works for me so yeah very good Cool. Listen, Damien, I've had so much fun uh, chatting this evening and getting to hear about all the crazy stuff from rugby, which is uh, totally outside my you know normal realm of understanding as well. To you know, hearing about um, you know running in the middle of the desert or riding trains in the middle of the desert, or um, you know the upcoming campaign to cross the Atlantic in a rowboat. So, thank you so much for the time and uh, for chatting to us. Me too, Jeff. I love this. Thanks very much for the invitation and opportunity. And uh, yeah, I hope I hope some people can take some value from from anything I said. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Uh, in the meantime, I guess you know, is there anywhere that you would point people to online to come and uh, look you up, find you, look at the site for uh, the race across the Atlantic? Yeah, it's um, www.damianbrown.com. Um, so yeah, you get all kind of all the information there and I'll be, uh, be blogging about, um, the next few months preparation, all my kind of mental and physical preparation and, and just, uh, yeah. And you'll be able to follow me there when I'm out, uh, flogging myself or chugging along in the Atlantic. So, uh, yeah, you get, yeah. Awesome. Anyone can go there. Cheers. Excellent. Yeah. And I'll definitely put that link in the show notes so that people can find it easier. Cool. Damien. Yep. Have a great evening. And, um, I guess until the next time we speak. Super. Thanks, Jeff. You too. All right. Take care. Cheers. Good luck. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Jeff here again. I just wanted to let you all know that we have finally officially launched on iTunes. So please go and check us out. Subscribe to the show. And if you love it, do not hesitate to leave us a review. Um, Even if you don't love it, actually, just leave a review. I'd love to see your feedback and hear what you have to say. And as always, you can always check us out online at livesofadventure.com where we've got the podcast episodes, but I also every now and then write a blog post that you might or might not want to read. So do give us a shout. Let me know what you think. And in the meantime, have a great one and we will see you again soon.